In this episode, Ryan and I discuss some of your concerns about the infinite banking concept given the current bank run crisis. We had fun and hope you enjoy listening. Welcome to the Banking with Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. And I'm your co-host, Ryan Griggs. Here we are on a beautiful Saturday morning in March. On a cloudy Saturday morning. <clears throat> cloudy Saturday morning. Uh, there's sun shining above the clouds. <laughs> okay. So, and so what do you want to talk about, Mr. Griggs? I know you had a, like a, an hour drive over here and you got all geared up on something. Yeah, and I was up early this, this morning, too, thinking about it. Um <laughs> I've had a few clients ask recently whether the recent bank runs in the U.S. on Silicon Valley Bank, uh, Silvergate, and to some degree Signature, although it's not quite clear that the circumstances are similar there, but um, to what degree bank runs affect life insurance companies, life insurance policies, and individuals' security and their and their comfort level. You know, so obviously this has to do with IBC. And I don't think it's going to be very widely discussed in the broader IBC footprint. You don't? No. Uh, so I figure we might as well say something. There you go. Well, I've had a few conversations over the last week. And, uh, you know, typically it's like, well, I've got, you know, more than $250,000 in the bank. Should I move it? Should I be concerned? And then don't the life insurance companies use banks? Mm-hmm. And, uh you know, and then the, kind of the guarantees of the different types of accounts, mm-hmm. the all-American average individual owns, you know, and who guarantees those and what backs those guarantees up. Yeah. So. so I have a, a few initial thoughts. I mean, one, the broad, my broad response is like, this is one of the reasons we do IBC. This is one of the reasons systematic capital accumulation inside of life of permanent whole life insurance from mutual company is advisable is because of the relative security in a life insurance company compared to that of a particularly small and medium-sized bank and so there's leaving layers within that right like what we're doing is capitalizing we're not we're, we're systematically accumulating concentrated financial value it's not This isn't banking per se in the sense of having money in a checking account and building up perfect, ostensibly perfectly liquid demand deposits at a commercial bank. That's not what we're doing. And there's a lot that could be said there, right? Like a lot of the conflation of like, we get it. Nelson used the word banking in IBC, like, okay, but a lot of the conflation online and the marketing references to policies as accounts or premium payments as deposits like they're not that they've never been that and for when people like me or you point that out and say stop it you know it the accusation is we're just you know finger wagging Mm -hmm. and it's just semantics and oh you get what i'm saying it's like uh well no how about let's have a banking crisis happen and then suddenly we might care about the meaning of words again so it's curious you know curious how that happens right like we like to have it all both ways you know the the language is amorphous enough and we can use the terminology of conventional finance to make it easy on somebody so they can get it easier uh, but then suddenly a banking crisis hits and then maybe clients who have implemented ibc want to know if what's going on in the broader economy is going to affect them oh but those advisors don't provide service anyway so maybe they're not, they never were going to ask to answer the questions in the first place 
<laughs> so then you get you get all your news from the news, right? All your up to date information from the uh, media outlets. That it, you know that's a hundred percent. Yeah. So no too. no wonder yeah. people are concerned. So I, you, you know, in the broader in the broader view, my response, you know, broadly is this is part and parcel of a fractional reserve banking system. Period. Bank runs. Bank crisis whatever the genesis of the crisis is mm-hmm. it's part and parcel of fractional reserve banking just like the boom bust cycle yeah that you can't separate them you can't separate and i had to have a client ask me you know one particular concern was well these life insurance companies must have bank accounts i've had that same question yeah yeah so <laughs> yeah could there be a problem for the life insurance companies to get access to cash and the answer to that, I think, has to do with what particularly happened with the bank runs in early March of 2023, the kinds of banks that were affected and the reasons those particular banks were affected. Like Silicon Valley Bank, probably, the I think, the largest of the three, right? Silver, Silicon Valley, Silvergate Signature, Silicon Valley Bank was, I think... Once it collapsed, was the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. At the prior to the receivership and eventual disintegration of it, was a top twenty bank in terms of capitalization. So a substantial financial institution, but in the context of banking per se, was what would be classified as a small to medium sized bank, right? Compared to your J.P. Morgan's, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, City giant conglomerate behemoths, these small to medium-sized types like SVB, Silvergate, and Signature, like other small and medium-sized businesses, had a lot of ex- did a lot of activity with loans to corporations. And these three banks in particular primarily served venture capitalists and indiv- uh, players in the cryptocurrency and technological kind of space. So that that produced industry risk, right? A high concentration to a particular type of clientele. Uh, the Now, what led to the ultimate bank run? Like at SVB, these venture capitalists, clients of SBV started telling their, uh, in the firms in which they had invested to, pull their money and change accounts. And what had precipitated that, as we come to find out, the SVB has been uh, bonusing out a lot of its senior management. Um, but F- of course, it, this traces back to FTX, right? So the, the, the giant financial fraud that was FTX is exposed. This causes fear and concern among the crypto community. A lot of those individuals go to their exchanges to pull funds. Those exchanges, many of them had accounts with SVB. And so you have a lot of exchanges, I think over the course of like March 13 and 14 in particular, pulling a lot of their funds, sort of a the first digitized bank run where you don't have to go line up outside of the bank door. You just punch some code in or even have it done algorithmically. And these funds are pulled from SVB. And so sudden, so that, that starts the drain on deposits at SVB, right? And then in the background, since 
March-ish of last year, 2022, you have the Federal Reserve hiking interest rates at a faster pace than ever before on a percentage basis. And come to find out that it's a little known fact for some of these tech firms that bond prices move inversely with interest rates. Well, going back a bit further, when interest rates were still in the dirt and companies were flush with deposits, they had to find somewhere to put this money. A lot of them put it into long-dated treasury bonds. And so you've got companies like SVB with a bunch of treasury bonds. And then you've got hiking interest rates that forces a discounting of those bond values by somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20%, producing a whole lot of unrealized losses on the books of these companies. And then you've got this external sort of exogenous event, this FTX thing happening. This causes a, a drain on the deposits of this one particular bank, SVB. And so the company now has to realize those losses. They have to sell assets in order to meet those demand deposits. And in the shuffle, they run up against FDIC minimum requirements for capitalization. Right? Banks have to have so much capital in order to meet uh, call, essentially calls on liabilities. Right? And if you hit certain thresholds, then FDIC receivership is automatic. Right? And that's kind of what happened. And okay, so that happens. And then you have this idea of contagion that happens with SVB. Well, then the concern becomes, and I was talking about this on Facebook late last week, you know, to what degree were the underlying causes that led to the SVB collapse affecting other banks? Well, to some degree, it affects a lot of the small and medium-sized banks because a lot of their banking activity is in loans, corporate loans, business loans, small business loans, mortgages. Whereas for the Uber large ones, the sort of people who sit at the front of the table at the banking cartel, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, City, they're flush with treasuries, a lot of high quality capital, relatively more liquidity. Whereas these small and medium sized banks have a lot of uh uh, outstanding loans to commercial to, to commercial entities to corporations. The timing of repayment for which is relatively less certain. Okay, so if I'm now a small or medium sized bank, and there's general fear about the security of bank deposits, and then you have the Federal Reserve come announce this bank term funding program, where they will promise to lend to uh, a banking institution so long as that bank can produce certain kinds of collateral, right? treasuries and mortgage-backed securities uh, and agency debt. Well, that's not what a lot of small and medium-sized banks hold. So what do you have? You've got Kevin Leary going on, Tucker Carlson talking about how a lot, you know, all of his special friends, Kevin O'Leary, it's funny because Kevin O'Leary was a big participator in the FTX scam, but Anyway, yeah, Mr. Wonderful. Yeah, it's how wonderful. You have this outflow of deposits from small and medium-sized banks into the large, uh, m big, uh, cartelized banks, right? J.P. Morgan and so forth. Okay, all of that is to say, who do you think your life insurance company banks with? Okay, these are not. These large financial <laughs> firms are not keeping bank accounts at, 
you know, mom and pop Main Street Bank. Yeah. They're banking with the big players. So the, the, the response to the client who asked me the question about whether the life insurance company can get to capital on fear of bank runs, the response is we, it, it's not the case that all banks experienced a run. You have to decompose what we mean when we say bank in the context of bank runs in 2023. The relatively endangered players were the small and still to some degree are the small and medium sized banks. And then of the small and medium sized banks, it's the ones who had especially bad interest rate management, right? SVB had no risk management officer for nine months out of the year in 2022. Um, no risk management officer at a bank. Um, <laughs> no so, hedging. Yeah. So no hedging, no, and none, like none at all. Not none. like just yeah, bad, none. just Big none. Run. Yeah. So the, uh, poor risk management, poor interest duration uh, risk management, industry concentration, and then on top of it, a lot of the accounts at the bank were in amounts in excess of the FDIC insured limit of $250,000 per account. So there's this confluence. Of, like well, I think one way I put it on Facebook was that there's this spectrum of circumstance for banks. Like, yeah, like what you said and what you said underlies all of this, right? That fractional reserve banking means that all banks are inherently insolvent it is the, that is a true but in that context there are some that are more fragile than others and the ones that are especially fragile happen to be these players with where the where they had little to no risk management industry concentration and account balances in excess of fdic limits and those were the ones on which the run was perpetrated. There is further speculation, uh, and I point to Caitlin Long of uh, Custodia Bank. If you go look for her, she did an interview on a YouTube channel called Blockworks, which is really wonderful, where there's some additional speculation that this was all coordinated to what? target those, those banking institutions that were explicitly serving the private crypto community space uh, on the uh, on speculation that there's a a consult an implicit insidious consolidation underway to extinguish private cryptocurrency players in order to pave the way for a centralized federal digital U.S. dollar. Um, but that's a whole we, we can get into that to the degree you want to. But that's a, a whole separate side to this, right? Anyway, what matters for the for our point here was that. Uh, I know you're getting mad because I'm talking so much. Um, I'm not getting mad. I'm just looking at the, um, how much time I, I might wind up with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same thing. What matter? What matters is that these life insurance companies aren't banking with your local mom and pop bank, right? And have often over a hundred years of practice at managing uh, interest rate risk. So. Yeah, that was my. That's the first phase of my response to the question of what if the life insurance can the life insurance companies get access to money? And your response, I mean, that was eloquent and very comprehensive. And I think that uh, in addition to some of the things that they didn't do well, would potentially uh, maintain their relationships. You got all the venture capitalists, hedge funds keeping lots of deposits in your institution 
And those relationships go wrong to the point that they tell their clients to pull money. Yeah. Like, but then again, with the, uh, and I listened to the uh, part, I think he posted something on Facebook and the young people were talking about uh, the crypto and, and, and the different things. I found that very interesting. Um, but it may be, and then from that perspective, maybe their relationships were just right on point. Maybe they are trying to crush, you know, some of these crypto banks. Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. Well, I, 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 there's absolutely more than one narrative going on. It's not any one causation. It's a confluence of several things that, uh, just circumstantially happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. Yeah. No. Well, this is the, I mean, this is what the march of centralized, politicized, governmental, monetary control looks like, right? And tyrants double down, right? The pharaoh cracked down, you know, he wouldn't. Look, man, they're rioting in France right now because they're moving the pension age up. And it's like here in America, we're just sitting there watching it happen. Mm. This is just another example of what we're watching happen. You know, it's like uh, the FTX debacle and collapse and all the uh, money laundering, slush fund, money flowing freely throughout that entity. I'm sure none of that was involved here with SVB. Well, we know FTX had, or Sam Bankman-Fried had like $10 with SVB. So they are certainly related. I, I think the... This particular episode is like, you know, under the guise of financial crisis, definitely an opportunity for the powers that be to to quash or to to further squeeze decentralized players, yeah, right? Absolutely. The small and regional banker, the private crypto driving money to the big banks. There's no question. Yeah, controlling the crypto. No, no question. Yeah. I mean, no question. And then rewarding the appropriate players and crushing the ones that they want to crush. So it's a good old boy system. And and when you're in, you're in. And when you're out, you're out. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So even within the all of that that's going on, their players are getting paid big money. You know, that you referenced before we turned on the mics at bonusing at SVB, Mm -hmm. all the way up to the morning of the raid on. Friday. Wow! Yeah, here I got to get this money out of the system, you know, and and so there's a lot there going on, and and you know you can put a tenfold hat on me if you like, but none of that happened in a vacuum. Every bit of it was constructed, and then they just take advantage of the timing and yeah, create the timing, create the opportunities. But it's like the 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 idea that, and I've seen all kinds of numbers. You know, they the SVB had two hundred billion dollars in assets, but they couldn't redeem twenty. 20 billion or two billion dollars in in uh capital calls from you know uh from runs and selling their uh bonds at a discount right because interest rates have gone up that's one percent it's like wait a minute i have 200 billion dollars in assets and i can't handle a one or one and a half percent cash call in essence you know i got to sell these at a discount take my loss and go on yeah, that doesn't make Maybe. sense to me. There was a big outflow of de- of deposit. I think in like one day, like forty seven percent of demand deposits mm. were pulled. Wow, that so, is a lot. Forty seven percent. Yeah, it was a lot, and it happened. Yeah, yeah. very fast. Almost like it was coordinated. I mean, the, oh, well, yeah, yeah. The, the you know that initial f- 
12 or 15 minutes or so. I mean, I don't expect that to be enough to like convey what all has happened. Um, a great follow on Twitter is uh, at Lynn Alden contact, L-Y-N-A-L-D-E-N contact. She's got a that March newsletter uh, that's currently pinned, gives a great explanation of the nature of the liquidity problem right now that led to the bank runs. And then she did a interview on... It's called the Blockworks uh, YouTube channel, uh, and I'll find it at some point. Um, but there's a there's a couple good podcasts on that network, uh, Forward Guidance and On the Margin, and there have been several appearances there recently that have that help a lot. I've shared some of them on Facebook, all of which is like public. Uh, so even if you're not a friend, you can go and find it. Yeah, this is called Bank Runs, Set the Stage for Financial Repression Endgame. And that was, that's Lynn Alden on the uh, Forward Guidance podcast on Blockworks on YouTube. But um, anyway, so the, my point is there's other resources out there to get like the full rundown. Patrick Boyle on YouTube as well also gives a good, he's a good finance alt fin. Uh, commentator, prof finance professor on YouTube. So you can go to those for more information on exactly how that all played out. But my point here is like addressing the implications for IBC and life insurance. Because um, there's another consideration, right? Like if the problem at these small and medium-sized banks was that their bond portfolios plummeted in value, well, isn't it the case that the primary asset on the books at life insurance companies are government bonds corporate bonds long-term high-grade corporate real estate but yeah bonds of all durations no question yeah so the i could and i haven't received this question but i could see it coming um, <laughs> is okay well what happened could the same thing happen at a life insurance company as is happening to some small and medium-sized banks namely could the value of their uh, bond portfolio fall sufficiently to cause liquidity concerns or worse to cause a life insurance company to run into minimum capital requirements and could that then trigger some sort of automatic receivership or mm -hmm. state commission involvement mm -hmm. um, no one's asked me that but <laughs> it's okay to preempt yeah, yeah. even the most severe of types of questions do you have any thoughts on that? I do. Sure do. Do you want to share them or do you want me to go? <laughs> no, just keep, keep going. It's, uh, yeah, you know, I have, I have thoughts and comments, but keep going. Yeah, could it happen? Well, anything could happen, number one. Um, and in some sense, we have to acknowledge that there's no perfect solution, right? At the end of the day, the monetary system is what it is. Uh, you know, Bretton Woods is over. You know, the federal debt is ever increasing. Deficits are ever expanding. Money supply creation is, is ever increasing, except for a brief window of quantitative tightening, which is now closed. So, like, these problems are ongoing, and they absolutely do p put pressures on companies that need to generate a yield in order to make good on long-term liabilities. My thing is that there are a few differentiating elements that separate mutual life insurance companies from these banks. Uh, and it goes back to where I, I kind of started off with, which is that life insurance companies are not banks. I mean, it sort of makes it 
it's not funny, but it's ironic that recently we had Mass Mutual mm. come and complain about the some bad actors in the business making whole life look like something having to do with banking per se. Like it what you know, hiding the fact that doing IBC meant getting whole life insurance. It's like whoever whichever players were doing that, whichever agents were doing that right now in middle in the midst of these bank runs, like it might be good to start telling people that, oh, this is actually life insurance. It's not a bank account. Right? <laughs> you know that that uh Whenever you buy life insurance, generally most all of the companies participate in LIMRA. I think it's a life insurance. You know, I don't, I don't remember the acronym. I'll, life Insurance Marketing and Research Association or something like that, right? And so they they provide an awful lot of data to the general public and to mainly the life insurance companies. And uh, <clears throat> I was thinking about that since you brought up Mass Mutual that. Um, you know, when you buy life insurance, you generally, and, and even, you know, look, whether you're buying life insurance, annuities, um, and, and maybe you get it when you buy health insurance. I don't really recall that, but life insurance or annuities, if you purchase that in America, you will get typically a survey from LIMRA, like grading the agent, giving a commentary, you know, on the agent, the insurance company, you know, the expectation, and then the purpose in which you purchased life insurance. And they gave you, you know, 10 or 12 boxes to check. You know, a couple of those boxes have to do with future retirement income. So, and I'm bringing that up because Mass Mutual is like, oh, you can't sell this as a, or, you know, it's positioned as a retirement account or retirement investment or whatever. When in fact, and, they, and there's some other egregious, and I'm still working on my commentary for Mass Mutual, okay, traveling, and it'll be good. Um, there's a couple of errors in that mass mutual memo. One of them is that talking about life insurance being presented as retirement. When the industry data collector provider for the insurance companies has a box on there, did you purchase life insurance for this reason, this reason, this reason, or this? And a couple of those reasons are future retirement income. So are you telling me mass mutual? never ever or doesn't currently consider life insurance cash values as sup potentially as supplemental income in retirement it's such a joke yeah but look whenever you pay a premium to a life insurance company is that an asset or a liability to the company you're asking me premiums income is it an asset once it's paid to the company the cash is yeah, yeah absolutely perfect so if i make a deposit in a bank is that a liability or an asset to the bank it's a liability perfect so um and then a life insurance company can't inflate right they can't inflate if i pay you know hundred thousand dollars in premium they've got their expenses and net 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 of that they've got to put that capital to work you know that's where they put it to work and Bonds, government, high-grade corporate bonds, high-grade corporate real estate, varying durations. And they're going to manage that whole portfolio over a theoretical life expectancy of 120 years. Um, but they can't inflate. So the bank can inflate. And we all talk about this 10 to 1, you know, like if you pay a – you have money on deposit in a bank. You know, it's a liability to the bank. But they can leverage that liability – 
10 to 1. Oh, no, banks are much. I don't know what the latest data is. I'd have to talk to Barry Dock to find out what the latest leverage percentages are. But I assure you, SVB and all those other banks were leveraged much, much, much more than 10 to 1. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. My understanding of banks currently is that they're flush with deposits. Like, if there was a meaningful reserve ratio requirement, it wouldn't matter because they have so much on deposit right now. Um, well, partly because of fiscal policy, all the stimulus that. Well, that's why they're flush. In. I get it. Yeah. But they're still leveraging. Sure. Yeah. I just don't know to what extent. I but, don't either. But do you, your underlying point of life insurance companies are not banks like they're they're not the the fundamental accounting of what the cash flows are is absolutely distinct you know your premium payments are not checking account deposits Um, a, a policy loan contract creates some degree of illiquidity right it's not as though you can go swipe a card and pull money you mentioned earlier in 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 the beginning which was you know there's a lot there it's like this the infinite banking concept is the intentional continual formation of capital you know it's like we're building capital over time mm-hmm. right so and and then and i think that's overlooked somewhat yeah. you know especially yeah. when you get into the short term thinking in the way you know so broadly um, you know, I, I prefer personally to do business with local regional banks. I know where they invest, you know, and, and I mean, I can read their balance sheet that they provide. I mean, not that I know every integral detail of the, the, the bank, but um, they're local banks. You know, I know where they invest locally and things like that, which that gives me a certain level of comfort. Um, but the consistent building of cash value through premium payments over a longer time period. I don't have a short timeline. I'm not looking at this year, next year only. Of course, I'm looking at this year, next year. You know, can I pay the premium? Does it make sense for me? Is it, you know, doing what I'm supposed to do or do, is it doing what I want it to do? Am I going to have the capital to do what I want to do and not be dependent upon the third party lender and not be part of the problem? Although I think today when the individual goes in, you know, and, and the the money that the the digits don't exist in the bank until I sign my John Henry. That is the beginning of the creation of the money, right? So I'm part of the problem when I do that. Now I didn't wind up uh, being dependent on a bank overnight, or credit mm-hmm. cards, and nobody else did either, right? It takes time to work your way out of this debt slave construct, in my opinion. So I don't want to be part of the problem. But whenever you have this politicized, cartelized banking, you know, one has to wonder how much of my activity, if I go borrow money for a mortgage or a car, how much am I really adding, you know, to the problem of banking whenever they use these banks as slush funds Mm. and they leverage the fire out of them and they absolutely are controlling the outcome, in my opinion. Um, I, I, I can I don't want to digress too far. But you said earlier, the systematic accumulation of capital, right? And so, you know, broadly, there's a lot of narratives going on. But at the at the you and me level, what I see is, and, it, and it's over the last couple of weeks, too, I've seen it where, 
you know, people are sending me illustrations and I'm not, I do not ask for illustrations. You know, if you, you know, and I don't, add, I don't, I don't want to armchair quarterback whomever you're in a relationship with when it comes yeah. to, you know, financial advising and, or life insurance purchasing. Um, so I'm, it, but let me say I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a capitalist. We get new clients every day. Okay. But what I have seen is this, hyper need to front end quote unquote load or pay a really high premium into a life insurance policy in the first year or two. Right. And then, you know, that you're really taking a life insurance policy and manipulating the fire out of it to have a high cash value. Maybe you're trying to illustrate a high internal rate of return as well. And it's like, well, you got to get the money out of the banking system and get it over here. You know, you've got to immediately, you know, pay, you know, 100000 200000 or 50000 or 10000 whatever it is in year one, and then pay pennies in year two and beyond. Like, then you've got to put all of that capital to work to properly, you know, and then call that infinite banking, or that's how you do it. So I'm just saying that the, uh, I have seen recently where the, People are being agitated, you know, oh, there's a bank failure, there's this and this and this and look at this and what is your life insurance company doing? What are they rated? Where do they put their money? How, how much capital can they get to? You know, aren't you worried about your cash value? Here, how fast can I get a policy issued and get all this money in there to, to get it protected? Where it's very, the protection in life, there's limits on protection to each account that you we put our money into, right? And so... Yeah, I can stuff all that money into a life insurance policy, but I'm paying for that privilege. And then what does it really do over the long term of that policy? It might not be in my best interest. Yeah. And I'm exceeding the limitations of, you know, guarantees. And we can talk about guarantees of a life insurance policy. Well, th- those people who advocate that, and there are plenty of them. They're online, everywhere. Yeah. Are not helping anything. They're not. Right? You, when you try to, when you go to a life insurance company, want to pay this big old outsized premium year one, year two, and then throttle it back down. And you're going to do hyper loan activity, right? Can I get a loan right away? And then build a little more cash. Go get another loan right away, right? Okay, so what causes the, in some sense, what is the bank run at the small and medium-sized bank? Well, it's when a bunch of depositors want to take money out of the bank. All right, now there is no direct analogy to the life insurance industry, but a close relative of the mass, you know, deposit pull is a bunch of loan activity. I mean, that at the end of the day is a distribution from the company, right? It's a, it's a neat, it's the life insurance company having to provide capital to a customer that has a contractual this right. Is a life to insurance it. company's capital, yeah, not Joel's. And, and let's not <laughs> jump over that, right? Like no. one of the risks that life insurance actuaries and st- home office staff have to manage is the unpredictability of the timing of loan origination and repayment. Like that, that is absolutely a, a risk to the company. Yeah, they've got to have enough capital on hand in order to be able to meet those guarantees. And it's not just policy loans, right? It's also outright policy surrenders, partial withdrawals, dividend distributions. The companies have to manage that, and so you're not helping anybody. 
by making their job harder, right? By telling customers, by telling clients and policy owners to go wear out the life insurance company, right? It's not doing, it's just like how in equipment financing part four, the, 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 what's causing the cumulative net outlay to increase, what's causing cash value to go up is not more and more loan activity. Right. It's the <clears throat> premium payment. Like there is nothing special. There's no magic in policy loans. Now, is the cash value there? Can you go get a policy loan? Should you, Are there legitimate reasons having to do with the ease of access and the efficiency and the true interest costs? Are, are all of those reasons there to justify and warrant going and getting a policy loan for a legitimate need for capital? Yes, but that bakes a lot into the notion of what a legitimate need for capital is. And a legitimate need for capital is not needing to go get a policy loan so you can go get your money out because you were talked into a giant premium by the guy selling the dump in big time, you know, first year two, year one, year two, premium payment wait wait and then because it's a direct recognition company go collateralize it right oh no i mean this yeah. part and parcel it's yeah. like the same stuff yeah yeah the, <laughs> and then these and these companies that you know there are when, when when we were when i refer to ibc friendly companies uh you know these are organizations that have practice at this, right? Who know what's going on, who understand what loan activity on a block of whole life business looks like. Mm. And so it's no wonder that there are other companies who are not IBC friendly because there is extra attention must be paid to that style of business, to what loan origination and loan repayment activity looks like. Right. And if you're actually, if your number cruncher people don't know that, then yeah, it, it, it's going to look unpleasant and you're going to get memos from companies <laughs> saying, don't send us the business or we'll cancel your I, I contract. Love I love that. Big Blue paying a 6% dividend, whatever, right? Big Blue. Okay. And and I uh, literally, I believe it's uh, mutual life insurance companies against the world when it comes to finances at the you and me level. Okay. Here you have Big Blue paying a 6% dividend and whatever their loan rate is at 5%. Then on brand new policies where, you know, there's a loss of liquidity in whole life, you know, um, because all of the cost of putting that business on the books, and it does cost a life insurance company money to put the business on the books. They got to pay not only the commissions to the agent, but they have to have cash and cash equivalents to all the liquidity that is uh, uh, guaranteed by the contract. And then they got to pay for everybody in the home office and they got they got to pay for all these expenses and I'm just saying it's weighted to the first 2 years. Okay. So then you overload the policy with PUAs and 85 90% of the premium quote unquote to the PUA and here big blue's got to pay that big old dividend, right? That's artificially supported it's supported, the dividend is supported by other, you know, areas of the enterprise, okay? Is that a problem? Not necessarily. Uh, it's not good whenever you sell off your most profitable divisions that have historically supported the dividend. You've sold them off, and so you still got to support the dividend. And then you have a loan rate at five, and then you have these Yahoo sending in, you know, big first-year premiums and then immediately borrow, uh, yeah, I wouldn't like that either, right? So, yeah, oh, okay. If you're paying six, you're charging five. Is this on the dividend? And then, and 
just because a company pays a five, five and a half, or six percent dividend doesn't mean you're going to see a six percent rate of return in the policy. I know it's kind of like uh, that's an early misunderstanding or an abused type of marketing um, promotion. It's like selling a life insurance policy off the dividend, you know, and the guaranteed rate, right? Oh, back in the day when the guaranteed rate was four and the dividend was six, that's 10, but you put 90% to the PUA and then you've, you're, you're still a net loss of 10 or 15 or 15% in the first year of cash values to premium. So just going through that math, um, I wouldn't want all of those poorly constructed policies in the beginning because now you got contractually the client has a right to borrow against those high early cash values so it's stressful to the company do i feel sorry for the life insurance company no i don't but then if i continue on that construct when you have the blended puas the death benefit is ultimately going to go down just as a side note while we're talking about these um so the long-term liability to the insurance company it looks pretty good if the death benefit is lower at natural mortality than what's illustrated in those early years, mm. it's like, hmm. So I don't have a bleeding heart for these life insurance companies that say, oh, you know, there's too much pressure and spread compression and blah, 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 whenever they're cashing the checks, right? They cash every premium check that comes in. And then that very construct that they're whining about is beneficial to them in the long run. So, and then too, the idea that banking, borrowing money against your cash values makes the policy more profitable or more efficient. You know, just what you said earlier, you're wearing out the home office, uh, the loan request and paper. And I get it that, you know, a lot of young people don't even use checking accounts or checkbooks or, you know, everything's online, which you can go online and request loans and make loan repayments and all that. Um that's fulfilled by a service individual in the home office. They don't have drive-through mm-hmm. windows. They're not a bank. They don't have tellers. You know, it's a service function. So, yeah, the systematic, purposeful, with intent, capital formation is a solution. Right? Yeah. I want to make a point too i was looking here too on this idea of the mutual holding company you know that has progressively replaced the mutual the pure mutual <coughs> right where we add a, and the way i've explained it to clients is that we add in a layer of dexterity and financial resilience while preserving the essence of mutuality which is yep. policy owner participation in the dividend right so under a pure mutual the entire enterprise is totally and completely owned by individual policy owners of course, I don't have to tell you this, but for you listening. And then, whereas a stock company, pure stock company, is owned by stock owners, people who can buy and sell shares of the entity on the open market, the mutual holding company structure consists really of various legal entities. But the idea is that a very large but minority position in what was the pure mutual is then owned by a parent group, essentially, or a parent company. Right. And the policy owners still maintain in order to preserve this essence of mutuality, the the policy owners still own a majority of the issuing life insurance company that sells the policies. Right. So you uh, a policy owner at a life insurance company that operates under the mutual holding company structure still has 
mutuality. They still have a contractual right. Uh, they still have residual claimancy to the uh, generation of surplus at that company. So when the company does well and has more on hand than it did when it started at the end of the year, that surplus some share of it still goes to the individual policy owner, right? There isn't stock. You can't go out and buy a position in this company. So in that sense, mutuality is preserved. But what the mutual holding company structure allows is to give access to this now subsidiary issuing life insurance company to a more capitalized, larger uh, financial entity, which of course is going to have other companies, right? So there's baked into this idea of the mutual holding company structure is the idea of diversification. Right? I think some people who have listened to IBC, uh, listened to th this podcast, what, you know, they get into this mode of whole life insurance, whole life insurance companies, and they think that that's all that's out there. When in fact, like the whole life business is just one component of a broader array of financial services and products that are provided by these other companies that participate in this mutual holding company enterprise, right? So things like term and universal life and annuities and other sorts of financial products, some of which are very profitable to the company, in effect, help or assist or, prov or, or provide backing to <laughs> someone who practices IBC <laughs> with whole life, right? What? You mean those other... Enterprises uh, add to the bottom line and potentially uh, increase my dividend because it increases the profitability of the company. Is that what you're saying? Is that yeah. what you're alluding to, sir? Yeah, and that, then, that one aspect. And then also just as a backstop to provide capital should that, be required. Right. So, you know, going back to it costs money to put these life insurance policies on the books in force, right? Um, and you you have a, a medium-sized company that is growing exponentially, right? For whatever, you know, I mean, they're just, they have great products. They have great service. They have great salesmen, salespeople. And so they're, the consumer, the general public is buying a lot of their product. It costs them money. Right? And you can have, I mean, a, a large, you can have a 10, 5, 10, 12, 15, 20 billion dollar company that could, uh, have some pressure mm -hmm. because that's still not enough capital to put these new policies on the books, right? So, and if they're a mutual company, they can't issue stock to raise capital. You know, they can go borrow money, right? Surplus bonds. I wonder how many, I don't even go there, how many, all right. So, uh, with a mutual holding company arrangement, this larger entity has capital. You can't jump over that. I mean, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. So in a mutual holding company arrangement, you could have a really good company that can remain really competitive and innovative, creating products that are profitable and meet the uh, the demand of the market. Mm -hmm. All right. And and combat the the overall consolidation and financial repression that's happened yes. since 71. Yes. Right? Yes. And that's why the pure mutual is and has been on its way out. I mean, a lot of the only pure mutuals remaining are the very large ones. And other companies have, have come under the umbrella of a mutual holding company structure in order to maintain the necessary capital to come to stay, like you say, to stay competitive in this environment. Yeah. And profitable, <clears throat> you know, and then, I mean, it could also, 
you know, like anything, go awry. There have been some really great mutual companies over the years that have done financial shenanigans and, you know, gone into receivership and liquidation. And, you know, this is a uh, an, an okay uh, – let me, let me point out that every life insurance company that issues contracts, which is what a life insurance policy is, or an annuity, right? It's a, they're contracts issued by life insurance companies. And the guarantees made – by that company in these contracts are backed up by their claims paying ability. That's where the guarantee is, period. Secondarily, right, there's the uh, guarantee associations with, with each state. There's a secondary guarantee, right? So a life insurance company cannot go bankrupt. Can't happen. They don't go bankrupt. They go into receivership, either liquidation or rehabilitation. And that's, you know, controlled by the Guarantee Association, the state where your company is domiciled in. Of course, oh, wait, you're in Texas. I'm in California. I'm in Wisconsin. You know, I'm guaranteed there's a certain amount of guarantees provided by that state. Right. And these companies, you know, have to pay. No, no. You're you. The consumer who pays for everything is paying for these guarantees. Right. Because the life insurance companies have to pay into these associations. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll take a side note on that. I think I've mentioned it before. Last year, I was at a life insurance conference and with a big life insurance company. And one of the top officers in conversation, it was last year, 2022. They had made their last payment mm-hmm. to the uh, – Guarantee Association Fund that bailed out executive life out of California. And this company was not domiciled in California, but they had policyholders in California. Okay. And so the Guarantee Association is, you know, ran by the states. And, you know, I just have to point out that, excuse me, your state's broke, sir. Your state's broke as well. They don't have any money. Now, they do have the power to tax and all that. But there are secondary guarantees to life insurance, and it's $100,000 in cash value, $300,000 in death benefit, and it's $250,000 per annuity contract. So, um, you know, it's just like the FDIC. You can insure up to $250,000 and. but to prevent contagion or to take care of their good old boys, you know, they – have on a whim they could say no we'll guarantee above that mm-hmm. or we won't or we'll guarantee it for you big banks but not for the little banks they can do whatever the hell they want to do yeah and that's exactly what they'll do number one they'll take care of their own that they want to take care of and they'll eat the ones of their own that they want to get rid of yeah okay so wait well, let me well, go ahead i was gonna say one one response i've seen from after the bank run stuff is people calling for fdic to just eliminate the idea of an upper limit on yeah. how much they're going to insure. And I, oh, so great. Let's, let's call for, you know, more government programs to solve problems created by government programs. And that's think, exactly what that is. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, maybe not a lot, some watching this or listening to this may say, well, 300,000 in death benefit, hundred thousand in cash value. What are you talking about? I, have, I got more than that. I, I started with more than that. What are you talking about? Exactly. You know? uh, and I get it. And the, urge to want the government to protect you should be observed and excused right it's the, the this this fear that oh it's the company i'm the what what's 
what's providing the guarantee is the paying the paying claims paying ability of the company is somehow shaded or bad that we want a government guarantee instead no no the greater the government guarantee the more aggressive and risky the companies become what more moral hazard leaves whenever you got a hundred percent guarantee yeah so if that you know, it's the seen and the unseen, right? The unintended consequence of, oh, we should have more government protection means that the source that would ostensibly cause the problem in the first place would only get worse, right? So the way to address concerns over guarantees, the availability of value and life insurance policy is with proper due diligence and then to be, to be aware of the ways out, Right to uh, be at a ten thirty five exchange or what have you, and look, there is also no perfect solution. The future is uncertain. Nothing in this life is guaranteed, other than that it will end. Uh, and I often find myself having to bring clients back into that perspective. That look, at the end of the day, the federal government could declare war on you know the state of Texas and shut down. Uh, any, any business operating in any state at once. Like there, there is no perfect answer here. You want perfection? You got to read the Bible, right? The, all we have here is a, is the, a, a limited option set from which to select the asset in which we might capitalize. And that's if you agree that it's a good idea to systematically accumulate concentrated capital. And if it is, then we have a limited, practical, realistic set of options from which to choose. And the, a, a proper advisory conversation, as we've discussed more and more recently here, uh, should consider the nature of the company, how long they've been around. I mean, I had an individual come to me, uh, had just signed on to become an agent with a, an IMO, and there was a, a very brief glimpse at the nature of the carrier standing behind the IMO. Come to find out, she ended up with a good company, but there was no awareness of the context from the get-go. I love right? it when the IMO is owned by the life insurance company yeah. and none of the agents know that in the beginning. They might figure it out later. Yeah. So, <laughs> I love it. But that should be part oh, of the – I mean, company selection should fuel the – selection of advisor but then the the design of the case in the first place because the terms and conditions vary company to company so th th there are things that can be done and, a, and, and an individual who embraces the responsibility to seek out or perform that due diligence themselves that that is the answer the answer is more individual responsibility the answer is taking on the the, re, the responsibility yourself to secure your own situation. I mean, so many of the, and I always love it, right? There's Whenever there's a crisis, a government crisis, financial crisis, what's the government going to do? No one ever gets up and says, gosh, there's a crisis. What am I going to do? That's, what am I going oh to do gosh. to protect my people, my future? My, how am I going to think differently, right? Which, by the way, is all you can control anyway, 
right? But no one ever, we don't want to, what's the government? What's the collective? We need to do this or that to this or that government program or authority. And of course, it's always more uh, that's only going to exacerbate the underlying problems that caused the issue in the first place. And we wonder why there's this cascade of centralization and consolidation. Like, hmm, you know. It's like, bring it on, man. It's, it's <clears throat> oh my goodness. The mere idea that you know, there's a couple of things. It's it's uh, like the conservative. I've seen some of the writings of conservatives. It's like, well, you're just being more communist. You know, you just want more communism, more socialism. If you want to take away the limits of guarantees and make it unlimited guarantee, they caused the damn problem in the first place. Yeah. You know, I mean, more government is always uh, like the the cry, right? But it, it just exact. Who cares what the limit is at the end of the day? Who cares mm. if they want to collapse a banking system? Right. By God, they're going to collapse a banking system. Yeah. You can you go grab all the money out of your bank. What are you going to do with it? You know, you better give them plenty of time if you got over two hundred fifty thousand dollars in there. <laughs> yeah, you got the cash. <laughs> you got it. I was talking to a gentleman the other day, um, client, and we were talking about this, and um. It wasn't that long ago. It wasn't recent, but it wasn't that long ago. He went into to withdraw. It was some ridiculous amount, like five or six or seven thousand dollars, and they told him to come back in two days. Jeez. And I mean, that was not related to this, right? Mm-hmm. Timing. Um, okay, so you're going to pile up money, you know, in the mattress, cash, right? Oh, well, what happens when they say, oh, there's a currency change? Or we're not going to use those $100 bills. It wasn't, I think it was last year that that the uh, that the EU the, uh, got rid of a $500 euro note, hmm. right? Well, people have been hoarding them for years, right? And they, they tried to get rid of it a couple of years ago. They started the process. And the window closed, you know, sometime last year. You had to turn it in. So uh, you, you want to stuff, you know, a bunch of $100 bills under your mattress? Or how about go buy gold? You know, you can get an awful lot of gold in a very small space, right? And and it's a legitimate question, you know, that 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 Nelson used to ask all the time. It's like, wait a minute, you're going to give me your gold, right, for my worthless dollars? Uh, help me out. Help me understand that, right? And then if I have... You know, maybe I got a gold bar, maybe I've got a twenty dollar gold coin, whatever it is, and I want to buy five dollars, I want to buy a twenty dollar haircut. Am I gonna chip off twenty dollars worth of gold from a from a one ounce gold coin? Yeah. I mean so and if you withdraw your money from the life insurance company or from the annuity, from the life insurance contract, from the market, wherever, whatever, it's like what are you gonna do with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the problem of bad money, uh, the the solution to that isn't no money. Like it's <laughs> there's going to be money. I mean, money is just the most saleable commodity, the most saleable good. I I know money's not a commodity money anymore, but it's the most saleable good. Crypto's real money. What are you talking about? Uh-huh. It's divisible. <laughs> yeah, and I I mean not inflatable. And there's all this like. And I've probably contributed to it in the past, you know, the hostility 
over cryptocurrency. I, at the end of the day, I don't really care. I mean, it's not in my control anyway. The money's going to be what it's going to be. Uh, the most saleable asset, the most saleable good is going to be what it's going to be because it because that solves the problem of the double coincidence of once. It facilitates exchange. There's going to be money. It's either going to be privately issued or it's going to be government issued or there's going to be a combination of the two and there may even be competing monies. And I think that's probably where we're going is a world where there are Please. more where there are competing monies that you know circulate side by side some illicitly some explicitly um at the end of the day and here's the major freaking distinction that i'm just going to keep as a subject of my dissertation i mean it's gonna i'm gonna keep on this is that what the money is and how you build capital are two separate things like capital, the financial or monetary value of an asset is a distinct thing from the type of money itself, right? There's going to be stuff worth money, regardless of what the money is. My point from a financial and economic strategic perspective is we want more of the capital. We want more of the monetary value, regardless of the particular denomination. The answer is more. Right. And because sometimes people say, oh, becoming your own banker, IBC, it's so good. Uh, how is this legal? Aren't they going to come after it? You know, they're going to come from, you know, are there more restrictions in the vein of modified endowment contracts? And my responses to that are one, they don't understand this, right? Because the idea of systematic capital, first of all, it's the opposite of what the federal government does. Absolutely. Right? And then all of the bureaucrats and the professors who shill for the bureaucrats all collect a state check. So it's not like they're, they have the responsibility to go and accumulate their own capital anyway. Like the only way they would develop an awareness of this is indirectly. Right? So the, there's a, a gap there. I'm not sure. I'm not even willing to grant that they understand. There are people in finance who don't understand that, right? So it's like, I, there, there's a theoretical gulf, number one. Number two, just empirically speaking, you've never heard of a run on a mutual insurance company, right? Uh, IBC, when, I, when people ask me what I do, oh, I, you know, I, uh, first of all, uh, groan, uh, I do the infinite banking concept. What is that? <coughs> no one's ever heard of this, yeah. okay? Uh, by the way, approaching 10,000 subscribers on the channel, that's cool, but you know, it's not 10 million. It's not a million. Because right? we There's, don't pay to promote. But my, my point is that <clears throat> this is still small. Yeah. And so it's it's empirically at this particular time and place, it's still small. Theoretically, the idea of accumulating capital just doesn't make sense to people, right? And of course they don't, because there's all still these more and more contributions to tax qualified plans, right? And there's no awareness that, like I talked in my think tank talk in February of 23, there's no awareness that, conventional financial advising is subject to the business cycle, right? <laughs> all, all of this has to do like the idea that I'm going to take responsibility to accumulate capital that I own and control and can get access to when and where I want to use for what I want. That it, that hyper narrow, hyper individualized perspective is so counter to the culture that it's not even on the radar, right? It's all about what's the tax qualified plan. What's the government going to do? You know, so there's, my point is there is this peace, and Nelson used to say it's such a peaceful way of life. There is this peace that should come to somebody whose capital is systematically accumulated in IBC style whole life policy, whole life policies that other people don't understand. Like the opposite of the 
not the opposite. An implication of the Lone Ranger syndrome is like, yeah, you may feel isolated and alone, but when the entire crowd is running off the bank crisis cliff into the tax qualified plan crevice, you can stand there knowing, yeah, I'm good. You know, of the of the limited, imperfect, you know, plagued by the <laughs> mankind's fallen human nature options. I went with the thing that has the best historical track record where the economics make sense, where there's no uh, fractional reserve banking. I'm not contributing to the business cycle. And I've got a, a, a contract that's the result of private, mutually agreeable exchange from a company that's nearly or maybe older than the country itself. It's like how much more secure outside of the Garden of Eden would you want to be? You know, and I'm not saying that, look, Ohio, Ohio National uh, went under. They demutualized. This is not perfect. There is no perfect solution, but there are ways out. You know, there are things one can do should those extreme events occur. And let's just say, look, if you go to 1035, you don't have a right to 1035 exchange. You don't have a right to take one policy from one company to another company. You have to apply for a policy with the other company. It's not a perfect solution. The new company would be taking on a risk that they previously did not. And so they get to determine whether they want to do that. Well, it's okay to be healthy at that time, right? It's okay to not let yourself go or whatever it is. Like it's okay to also take personal responsibility for your own health as best as possible. Wait, wait, <clears throat> if I'm going to buy life insurance in the future, I might be aware of how big my waistline is hmm. or what my blood pressure is. Hmm. I mean, I might like focus on Look the greatest myself. asset, the investment that I would ever be exposed to myself. Hmm. Yeah. All that personal responsibility. Damn OMG. It. I just want, listen, just tell me where to put my money. Yeah. What, listen, what? Ohio National, program. Look, Ohio National didn't go under. They demutualized. So uh, Canadian <laughs> private equity group. Oh, Canadian private equity. Could it buy them because they've got all the capital, you know, from all of these other hedge funds. And, uh, and then they have... Uh, let me see. I think they're managing the Canadian Teachers Retirement. Ontario. Yeah, Ontario, Ontario Teachers Retirement. Yeah, they got to put all that money somewhere. And mutual companies are just not that profitable. So they had to demutualize so they could do a stock company. So they instead of a you know 6 7% rate of return, they're shooting, of course, for the 12 and 15% rate of return. So I don't know. But I'm sure all their products are now going to be universal life and Oh, did you, you didn't it, the the new product release indexed whole life? Uh, you know, I saved an article a month or so ago, but I hadn't gotten around to reading it because I just wasn't ready to throw up in my mouth, so I didn't read it. <laughs> Sorry, I, you know, I'm, I apologize, but you know, there's some you look you just like you. We you know we all get inundated with information. You know, it's like this banking, that banking, and all the all the narratives going on, and and it's no different in the life insurance world, right? We get tons of information and it's just like oh my gosh you're trying to sort we go it. again yeah how much time do i want to waste on this but there might be some little nugget in there that you didn't know it's did you read the article on the index whole it's been some months ago but yeah i i'm like it's i know what i need to know and i don't know everything and i don't have the arrival syndrome but i know what i need to know about that life insurance company they went around the country tried to sell themselves to every legitimate buyer out there and Every legitimate buyer out there said, 
No, thank you. Why? Because they could do their due diligence and look at the risk on the books in the future. Hmm. Yeah, and this was reflected in Comdex scores. I mean, you didn't have to be, you know, an oracle to see that your financial uh, if you're, condition was deteriorating. If you know the business, like if you know the life insurance business, if you know the life insurance business from a mutual whole life insurance company perspective, everybody can look at their little block of business. That's why all the suitable... Well, they thought that that's why all the life insurance companies said, no, thank you, Mm -hmm. that they tried to sell themselves to. Now, one did buy them, and I'm not going to talk about that, but anyway. So, um, I would say that the financials of the company matter. I would say that your understanding matters. And I would say that your actions matter the most. To get a good education, in my opinion, you've got to be able to recognize some noise. There's a lot of good stuff out mm-hmm. there on the internet, but there's an awful lot of jank stuff you should step over. Um, but go to the source, okay? Begin at Nelson Nash's first book, Becoming Your Own Banker. His second book, Building Your Warehouse of Wealth. And then his six and a half hour seminar that's available digitally or on DVD. And I know that, you know, we're in the, you know, the age where I don't have a DVD player. I bet your children have game boxes. I don't know. You can play a DVD there, but you should own that. All right, you should, you should own these two books and you should own that uh, access or the DVDs. Six and a half hours. That's a solid foundation. Then I would throw in how privatized banking really works by Dr. Robert Murphy and Carlos Lara. And there's a lot of other stuff out there. You know, Mr. Griggs will get around to releasing his book, you know, which we're all looking forward to. But a foundational educational understanding. And you can skip over, in my opinion, if you read these two books, and I get it, even uh, – Nelson's first book is on Audible. It doesn't exactly match up chapter by chapter as a printed version, the fifth edition of Becoming Your Own Banker. But it's only 92 pages. You know, the the blue book, the uh, Building Your House of Wealth is not that thick. It's okay, especially if we're talking about you. You can read this or you can read all the articles about all of these collapsing banks and the collapsing cryptocurrency exchanges, right? I mean, it. It's okay to read this. Take your time. Even if you don't like to read, you're a slow reader. I'm the slowest among us. Um, and it will inform you whether you even want to consider this idea of becoming your own banker right, for yourself and your family. And then once you have that solid foundation, you, in my opinion, you'll be able to vet the noise. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right. And you could probably tell somebody why it doesn't sound right. Not that they'd be interested in hearing it's yeah. like there's a a lot on the you know why study the idea of why study economics like why care you know uh it's all esoteric can't understand it it's corrupt blah 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 yeah yeah all of which fine true but understanding some economics is the solution to times like these you know the the fear uh the lack of economic understanding creates a vacuum that fear fills. Right? If if there's not a clear, if you don't have clear context and clear orientation, then that creates a theoretical vacuum. And 
fear loves that, right? And so it'll make someone feel scared, feel uncertain, feel inadequate, and all of the things that come with that, which is everything on the, you know, anxiety and psychological hey, look, terror yeah. and all of that <clears throat> kind of stuff. Uh, and so, look, I'm not telling you to go read Human Action by Mises. I mean, if you you could do that, that'd be good. Um, Understanding Money Mechanics by Bob Murphy is a great little uh, primer. But we harp on this all the time about reading Nelson's Becoming Your Own Banker. And you've, you've used the example before of decoder lenses, like the little red and blue glasses you'd get in the cereal box. Yep. It's like... It helps you see through. This is what we're talking about. Like, if you understand the basic principles of don't be afraid to capitalize, of the value of taking responsibility and thinking long range, and this the whole idea of capital that I harp on. Like, if you understand those core fundamental principles, then even in the middle of an information war, even in the middle of a financial repression campaign, in, even in the middle of the onslaught of information from the internet, you have a sorting device. You have something that can help you sift through to get to what you personally, individually need to do. And that is the, that is the value of developing this conceptual understanding. It's the value of knowing some economics. It's the value of reading Nelson's book, Becoming Your Own Banker, rather than capitulating to the fancy marketing schemes. Yeah. Right? If 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 you're if you're just a number that happens to be participating in a click funnel in order to be led to a sale, so that because someone's making it easy for you, uh you're missing out on the thing that will equip you for the next crisis. Because as we said earlier, the crises are a feature. They are not a bug. They are a feature of the fractional reserve banking system. Absolutely. So this is going to happen again. Yeah. Right. And it would be okay to be prepared at that time. Uh, and in reading, reading Nelson's book is one small, little, but extremely powerful way to prepare yourself for that and all of you know i say i would stress again all of this is in the context of the broader objective the the particular selected differentiated ob objective of deciding to systematically concentrate and accumulate monetary value right that is a unique objective that people generally aren't doing right it happens on accident or in piecemeal fashion, if at all, right? Well, and it, they may think, well, I'm contributing to a 401k. I'm I'm contributing to my IRA. Yeah. And so they- Exposing it to systematic planned loss. Yes, but <laughs> but they it, it's easy to mistakenly believe that I'm building capital, you know? Yeah. Well, here's a good test. I mean, explain like for the individual themselves, explain that rationale, yeah. explain the objections to that rationale yeah. and explain the rationale for the objections. If you can do all that, then maybe you, maybe you can actually make the case that you have taken responsibility to own that decision. But if you can't do that, if yeah. you can't explain the reasons why the reasons against and the reasons for the reasons against then it might be an indication that you've just 
accepted the noise through osmosis. That's exactly right. You know, back in the day when I first started my little career, and I know I'm not that old, but uh, it was, you know, buy term and invest the difference, you know, from a company, you know, where A.L. Williams got that idea. And then and they didn't even originate it. But it was the invested difference was into mutual funds, right? And back then, this is how far back it goes, it was an 8.5% front-end load. That's what they were. You know, today, it's like, oh, we'd fall out of our chair with a heart attack. How much? Right? But they pay the, you know, the three, the two and a half, the ABC shares. and I mean, they, they pay egregious fees over the life of, you know, a mutual fund contract and jump smooth over that. Um, but, but it's, it's uh, the, um, I forgot where I was going to go. Wait. Yeah. I forgot where I was going. That's okay. No, I don't want to. I don't want to jump over that because it was. I thought it was good, but it, it, just the uh, systematic formation of cap. No, they think that. Okay, so I'm doing the 401k. I'm buying mutual funds. You know, everybody else is doing it, and then and then this is where I was going. It's like you, you mentioned the infinite banking concept, and and it's like, well, what? How? What do you mean? What? 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 Life insurance? Can you explain that to me? I could, or you could read and educate yourself, and not depend on me and my explanation, right? Well, mm. back in the day, it was the same thing. Well, what? What the hell is a mutual fund? What do you mean? Mm. Uh, you know, what is a mutual fund? How do you? How do you explain that? And it was like you had to explain what a mutual fund was. Well, you know, they're like looking at you in a daze. Well, now everybody buys mutual funds like it's no big deal. Mm. But can you explain a mutual fund? You know, and I'm sure most of you can. Um, get your mom to explain a mutual fund, all right, where she's got all her money. My whole point here is, um, yeah, if you want to explain the 401k and the contribution, if you can do that, well, if you can explain a mutual fund, if you can explain what you're doing financially, it, it's good. Yeah. You, know, you should be able to do that. And if you can't, then maybe, ugh. so um, instead of, relying on somebody's explanation of the infinite banking concept or life insurance. And I love it because it's true. Most people's understanding of life insurance is based on someone else's misconception. Then you dive off into this idea of infinite banking. There's a zillion names out there and they all say they're doing whatever Nelson did mentioning his name. You can string the IBC together. And so they're telling you, you know, you got to have a high premium or whatever it is you got to do. You can vet that. Whatever they're telling you, you can vet us. Right? You can vet what we're saying, and we're telling you where the material is to go vet us, right? So yeah, or fill out the form, and I'll do a call twenty. I know you will too. A twenty, 20 minute, minute call, call with anybody. Ask your questions. Yeah, and wait. I <laughs> you bring that up. Um, that, you do too. I'm sure get emails all the time, mm. and I and I respond to every email. You know, we we're responsive, right? Um, but I love these emails that come in and, and it's kind of like, you know, now I don't know how you operate, whether you're a salesperson or you get paid by policy or you do consulting fees or, you know, whatever that initial is. And it's like, of course you don't. Um, you've never asked, right? I tell people how I get paid, but you, they start with that sometimes and, but then they want to get to their question that, that that they have a dire need for an answer right but they cloak it or begin with you know 
uh, I, I, you know, I don't know if you do this kind of work or whatever. Do I have to be a client for you to answer my questions? <clears throat> and it's just, it's heart rending. I'll pay you, I'll pay you for your time. Right. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to pay for your time if you do consulting work. But if you don't, maybe you can refer to somebody who does, or maybe you only get paid by the policy. I'm not sure how you work, but I have this, I have these questions that you know burning down the house, and I need an answer to. And it's like, just ask a question. How about we yeah, start there? just get to the point. Yeah. How about we just say, hey, this is where I'm at. Can you help me? Yes or no? And it's like, yeah, probably can. Whether you become a client or not. I mean, how much time do you spend with people who don't become clients? And you don't have to answer that. I I can tell you it's a lot, right? And the same here. uh, And my whole point is you can educate yourself and you don't have to be dependent upon other people's explanation of Nelson's work. You can go and find out what Nelson said about the infinite banking concept. I mean, it's there. You don't have to rely on my interpretation, Ryan's interpretation, or anyone's interpretation. It's there. You can find out for yourself, and it's worth it. It's, it's just my encouragement. You know, which I hear all the time, too, from clients, prospective clients. It's like, James, I didn't even know that six-and-a-half-hour DVD series was available. I've got three policies. I'm paying X number of premium, mm-hmm. a lot. And then I read Nelson's book, or I've listened to Nelson, and it's like, oh, my gosh. I don't think I'm doing what you know I thought I was doing. So that happened two times this week. Get in touch. I've got however many it was two or three policies. Uh, direct recognition, blended term PUA writer, ten percent of annual outlay to the base. Showing the blended term carried through like age fifty, and I'm like, and then and then it's it's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. You tell them what they have, and it's not good, bad, or different. And talking about 1035 exchange, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't automatically, just because you have a policy that may not be what you thought it was when you originally purchased or it. You didn't know the options at the time. Yeah. It, and I mean, it doesn't mean that you've got to burn that down and start all over. Okay. And then, and then too, let me go, I want to go back to this is, you know, we all make decisions based on the information that we have. Right. And sometimes we have bad information, right? but this is what we have. Um, and no question that, that could potentially be a mistake or we make decisions based on emotions. That's what fear, right? Fear is an emotion. And if I'm out of balance on my emotions, fear or greed, I'm probably not going to make a good decision. Mm-hmm. Right. So the information that you consume is important and it's worth waiting to get the information before you make a decision. I don't know. You know, you've had two this week. I've had exactly two this week. And just think of how many people didn't call, right? And 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 it's like, you don't have to do anything right now, right? It isn't like, oh, the banks are collapsing. I got to get all my money into a life insurance policy immediately. No, no, you don't. Um, take the time to educate yourself is my encouragement. And this is how that Nelson's two books is six and a half hour video series. It's like, I, I see, uh, I don't think I shared it with you, but, um, and maybe we'll talk about when the, when everybody's not listening. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll, I'll talk about this. They had a perspective client, you know, he's several policies and it's like, I didn't know this and I didn't know this and I didn't know this. And we're just 
telling him what he has. Yeah. And, you know, this is what you have and the blah, 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 blah. And he's like, and I was even paying the additional cost, the monthly cost to get to that entity or the entity that provided this. No way. Yes. A subscription yes. fee monthly. on top of the. Yes. And then still couldn't get his questions answered. I'm like, so these people want the information. I'm just telling you where. And I'm just saying for, for less than two months of that per subscription fee that that young man was paying, mm. you can have all of the foundational information. Now you got to spend the time to go through it. It's not going to be spoon fed to you necessarily. Yeah, I didn't tell you that, did I? Uh, no, he didn't. And, and it's I'm just can't wait to find out who it was. It's just it's heart wrenching, you know. So, but look, I'm a capitalist, so uh, you know, you spend your money, you spend your time to vet this concept, right? And then call someone who knows what they're doing, who's not practicing on you. Okay. Yeah. And my my thing is when people say, "Oh, you're you know you're saying that you're just marketing." My thing is that uh, you're marketing right now. You do I a know. podcast. I'm always marketing. Day. I just uh, <laughs> you're machine Apple, so I must be marketing. Uh, uh, my point is though the the more deep more deep point is whether you agree with me or not is beside the point. I would just rather you have a rationale for what you're gonna do. Right. What bothers me is when people end up with stuff that they don't understand and they don't know why they got what they got. And, and why would they have known, right? They weren't told that there were options in the first place. So yeah, here I am telling you options and saying that I've got a preference for this over that. And then maybe that sounds like marketing to you. But what it is, is improving the resolution of the context, developing a higher definition understanding of the landscape. That's what it is. And if you want to take a path that's different than mine, Go for it, but know where you're going and why you're going that way, right? So I, does, do I think that, you know, the method I use to apply the principles that Nelson taught in your individual life are better than a lot of what's out there? Yup, I do. <laughs> and I can explain why, mm. right? But that's my rationale. Maybe somebody, maybe you want, you know, going back to this idea of what's the right design or the right policy or the right company or the, No. There's value alignment or there's not value alignment. There's embedding what Nelson taught in your own application of his principles or following a marketing plan. Those are the alternatives. And if you want to follow the marketing plan, great. Leave me out of it. You know, if you want to do what Nelson taught, we've got, we can do some work and it'll produce the kind of natural, organic, peaceful, financial life that's possible for us in this fallen world you know not perfection but a dramatic improvement on what other people are going through you know all these all these companies that losing money because they had giant uh bank uh accounts with these uh bankers you know all that capital should have been in life insurance and they should have been using the banks as gophers to fetch money from the company and give it to the, I mean, from the life insurance company to give it to the corporation to use for what they needed, right? And the individual owner, oh, wait, they're all publicly traded companies. The individual owner of the corporation that is the customer to the bank should have been the one controlling all of that rather than being dependent on the commercial bank and keeping 
account uh, an account balance in excess of FDIC insured levels. The FDIC insured level isn't the point anyway. The capital should be accumulated in private assets that you own and control. That should be in whole life. Period. 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 And if if there's a problem with getting from where you are now to where the majority of your capital is stored in life insurance, that is a problem of logistics, not of principle, right? That is a problem of a matter of time, right? That is a suggestion that a process should have already been started. And one that should have already been started can go ahead and start now. Because as we said earlier, this will happen again. And if you're of an age where you're gonna, you know, likely be around for the next financial crisis, it's okay to prepare now. <laughs> and in fact, you might need to because you can't go dump in a bunch of cash into a whole life policy in a tax favorable fashion. It's got to be done over time. Look, there'll be somebody out there that says, no, no. Yes, you can. Let me show oh, you how. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Anyway, I feel better. I hope everybody else feels better. It's like therapeutic in there. <laughs> it is. But that's how I feel about bank failures these part this particular episode of bank failures you know confined to the particularly risky segment of the small and medium-sized market where a vast majority of bank capital was in treasury bonds that got clobbered in value when interest rates spiked doesn't help that they had no risk management doesn't help that uh they literally had no risk manager for nine months in the preceding year doesn't help that they were severely concentrated in one industry. Like there are other confounding proximate factors that contributed. Uh, yeah, they weren't over leveraged. <clears throat> Has nothing to do. Like the fractional banking system is just fine. They just didn't have a risk manager. Yeah. You know, there were some capital calls. Regulations and, weren't good enough. Oh, yeah. I got to have better more. regulations. Yeah, because that's worked out so far. Really? Anyway. Okay, thanks for listening. Pro- oh, before we end, the oh, problem wait, is, wait, wait. No, what, what you always say, the problem is the problem. The problem is a problem, whatever it is. And there's always going to be a new problem, couched in a new light, new story, new new backdrop. Same thing over and over and over and over and over and over. The solution is the premium, period. The premium is the solution. I'm happy. Okay. Bye, y'all. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content. 